Hello and welcome to Madison's Notes, the official podcast of Princeton University's James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions. I'm your host, Annika Nordquist. Today, we are very lucky to have on the show Mr. Robert Dorr, president of the American Enterprise Institute in Washington, D.C., and member of Princeton's class of 1983. The American Enterprise Institute is one of Washington, D.C.'s most prominent think tanks and of a center-right persuasion. It produces a lot of research from a lot of scholars on everything from economics to foreign policy to the new program instituted by Mr. Dorr, Social, Cultural, and Constitutional Studies. Mr. Dorr's own background is in poverty studies and welfare. He's the editor of A Safety Net That Works, Improving Federal Programs for Low-Income Americans. On today's show, we're going to cover a lot of ground. We're going to discuss the state of conservatism, both in D.C.'s capital, in the nation broadly, and on college campuses, including Princeton's. We're also going to draw a lot on Mr. Doerr's background in poverty studies to discuss what conservatives have done to address issues of poverty and welfare so far and how we can improve in the future. With no further ado, I really hope you enjoy this discussion. Robert, welcome to the show. It's such a pleasure to have you here. Glad to be here, Annika. So to kick us off here, um, let's take a kind of look at the bird's eye view. You're located in D.C. at a think tank that's serving a lot of people on the Hill, people in other industries. What's kind of your perception of the most motivating issues in politics right now? Well, there are a lot of issues that are motivating people in different ways and yeah. in different constituencies. And and one of the things that I have to do at AEI is, is, is ensure that we play in multiple areas. We don't try to get isolated in a couple specific things yeah. because the terrain in the debate in America between people who see things with a greater focus on freedom and greater focus on free markets and, 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 and on the strength of our, our founding documents and those who don't see it the way we do is, mm. is broad and right. it's, it needs to be engaged with or fought in, in every place. And mm-hmm. so we've got people that work on the debt and deficit and the concerns about that. Yeah. We've got people that work on the overreach of government and, and too much regulatory policy, either at the federal or state level. We got people that work on constitutional issues and issues concerning what the court is taking up. We have a big group that does foreign and defense, obviously yeah. what's happening around the world in between China and the United States and Russia and the United States and Russia and the Western world. They're big, big, very, very compelling issues and that we at AEI want to be you know, first in the discussion. And, yeah. and in many places, we are first in the discussion. We have very high quality scholars, very high quality thinkers and writers about these issues. And, and I want us to be on multiple fronts. And uh, so you've asked me which is the most important or where am I most focused? I'm, I spread it around a little mm. bit. I happen to think the two pressing challenges in our country right now, or that seem very, that need to think special attention and aren't, and I'm a little worried about, mm. our, is our role in the world. And yeah. How are we going to handle this uh, invasion of Ukraine and our relationship with China? How are we going to get ourselves to, to move that in a positive direction, both of those issues? And then the issue concerning the, the size and, and, and growth and expenditures of the federal government, the debt and the deficit, the spending after COVID, the spending during COVID has just taken that issue to a whole nother dimension. And um, I think we've got to face up to them. And I don't think America is, um, yeah. especially the second one. The first we're facing up to, but it's so delicate and so 
dangerous. Mm-hmm. Uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan wrote a book called The Dangerous Place. The world is a dangerous place. Yeah. And the United States has to manage its relationship with the world in a careful and appropriate and sober, and I hope um, positive and democracy and freedom-loving way. But those are all, those are all concepts that are laden with, with, with difficult um, turns that we have to avoid as a country. Yeah, it's interesting that you draw to those two issues, because I think traditionally people think of politics as it's a two-party system. You know, there's two choices. Republicans have one view on this. Democrats have a different view on this. But both of those, I mean, Ukraine particularly, but even now, so kind of issues about budget and things like that, things have kind of kaleidoscoped. You know, it feels to me at least that there are kind of a variety of different views being represented. And I'm wondering, again, AEI kind of having the reputation at least of being a sort of more centrist think tank, what your view is on, you know, the various players and what the nature is of the debate that's going on in those issues. Well, we're nonpartisan. Right. And so it's very important for AI to call them as we see them, regardless of party affiliation or party loyalty. Right. We're not non-ideological. Right. Our positions on freedom, on, on free markets, free people, limited government, the, the role of America in the world do make us more likely to align with people on the right. right. But the right, as you know, is a pretty broad place. Right. And so I, I would guess I would say we're also not, uh, as our predisposition is not to think that the world is coming to an end and that the society as we know it and America as it was, was created is somehow lost. We're more positive. We're right. more thinking that if we just apply ourselves to these issues one at a time, there'll be ups and downs in election politics. But over the long haul, we can... We can preserve the country we created. We can preserve the country that we want to have. And so we don't draw really bright lines between us and them. That's true. And I'm glad we don't. I don't want to be like that. Um, we're all Americans. We're all trying our best. And I want to find ways to solve problems, um, not tear people down. So harping a little bit more on you know, the foreign policy one, I mean, in my relatively short lifetime, there have been few issues that I've seen kind of the right so angry at itself about. Um, how is AEI kind of dealing with that kind of intellectual diversity within the right? What is it putting forward as potential solutions to, you know, it's a really kind of tricky and difficult situation? So, Annika, that's a very good question for AEI because as I see it, having come to AI only nine years ago and being president only in the last four years, um, there were aspects of um, the American foreign policy concerning the Middle East, yeah. uh, especially in Iraq, that uh, didn't play out so well and left a bad taste in Americans' uh, mouth about sort of the use of American power, the use of American treasure, the use of American uh, soldiers in, in, in situations that didn't necessarily lead to a, a satisfactory outcome. Mm. And the problem with that experience is that it's made more difficult other efforts to use American power in an appropriate way in other places because people still have that in the back of their mind. And so what I want our scholars to do at AI and what I think under Corey Shockey and the various other scholars in the foreign and defense team too, is put that in perspective, treat that with the the depth and and accuracy that it requires. and but also guide us forward and see how the situation in Ukraine or the yeah. situation with regard to China are not the same. And we can't mm-hmm. be constantly fighting, you know, de- determining our strategy on the next war based on what happened in the last war. This is a different situation, requires different approaches, and it shouldn't 
be our efforts to help the people of Ukraine in their battle against the aggression of the Russian uh, government uh, should not be hindered by an obsession right. about previous mistakes, in my opinion. We should be conscious of them. We should be aware of them. But we shouldn't let them uh, control us and prevent us from doing the right thing in helping uh, uh, a country that's being invaded by a bigger, bigger neighbor. I, I want to continue talking about there are some tensions in kind of the conservative coalition mm -hmm. that Reagan built. And, you know, Reagan united economic and social conservatives. And right now, again, it feels to me we're starting to see some cracks, at least there. And so I want to start off with what do you see um, as the relationship between this kind of more fiscal economic conservatism and the more religious social conservatism that motivates many parts of the country? Well, you know, that's a, also a great question because I think in the old days, the economic and social conservatives were together right. on a, a principle and focus on the individual mm. and on individual agency and on individual responsibility. The current crop of social conservatives, it seems to me, have moved a little bit away from the individual and personal responsibility and moved closer toward collective and governmental action. And uh, they sort of have a openness and a willingness to embrace policies that come to the rescue of Americans who are facing a difficult time, even if a government intervention to help them might actually not work or not or have other uh, consequences. And, and um, the sort of commitment to the individual and the responsibility of the individual seems to be of lost. So there's a fascination with cash benefits from right. the federal government flowing to every American, regardless of what they do, just so we can make it easier for them to have children or right. to form families. That doesn't seem to me to be consistent with a previous commitment to the role of the individual or more importantly, to the, the local entities and the local institutions, the, the church, the family, the local government, where the real old conservative would say the action should be. These commitments or these desires to make a further commitment by the federal government, tax writing um, or check writing uh, facility, seems to me to be a contradiction of that old. But it has happened. And, yeah. and, and, and so it's, it's not just that the economic conservatives are obsessed with debt and deficits and wear green eye shades and, you know, <laughs> want to, you know, get the debt and deficit in order and, and aren't, aren't concerned about families. It's that the social conservatives are actually adopting approaches that are much more akin to, you know, the big government, yeah. Lyndon Johnson, Franklin Roosevelt, we can solve every problem from Washington with money than we were ever comfortable with. And we remain, you know, just very skeptical of the ability of, of the federal government and big government to solve problems that distance from the household or the family or the community. And we're not, at AI, we're, we're there and others seem to, in this sort of desire to solve a problem in the easiest possible fashion, which is by writing a check, um, uh, has seemed to have embraced that. And that that's, I'm uncomfortable with that and a lot of our scholars are uncomfortable with that. And so on that divide, we've stuck with the principles, the focus on the individual, the local community, the state, the city, the church, the family, not Washington. Um, and I think that's a, it's been a really interesting thing to watch. Some conservatives embrace a big government answer 
to um, problems of people in communities across America, when in the past, conservatives would have always said, that's not where the answer should come from. Yeah. And I think you're such an interesting person to talk about this because very unusually for a conservative, your background is in kind of poverty studies and studies on welfare and things like that. And I definitely want to ask you, uh, you know, more about that, kind of given your particular bent towards it. To start off, though, how did you wind up? I think it's I run across so few people who go from <laughs> that kind of interest to, you know, conservative. Yeah, it's activism. interesting. So I, I grew up in Brooklyn. My father had run a, a small community-based anti-poverty program that was not successful. And the reason it wasn't successful was because the big federal interventions of writing checks and putting people on welfare without any expectations of work mm -hmm. or personal responsibility really failed. New York City and failed cities and places all across the country. And the reaction to that led to Bill Clinton and Newt Gingrich passing the welfare reform legislation. And that was my um, good opportunity to get into, into public policy because what I wanted to do was in line with what mm -hmm. the country was doing. And I went to work for Governor Pataki right at the beginning of his term in 1994. And we implemented a work-based, work-focused, uh, work-requirement-laden welfare system in New York State, which didn't have it in the past. And because we had a conservative-leaning mayor and Mayor Giuliani, and we had a, a federal government that was supporting this initiative, we were able to do a lot of things. And the main thing we did was we helped a lot of people, mostly single parents, um, um, get into employment and earn their own success. And now they also received various government assistance to make work pay. They, they weren't completely detached from assistance, but they had to work at least some. And that was different than the entitlement mentality, which said, it doesn't matter what you do, we'll just give you a check. And so I wanted to do that. I believed in that approach. I got into that in a, as a political appointee for Governor Pataki. I rose fast. I like to say that when Republicans are in charge, the line for jobs and social <laughs> services is very short. And I, and I had a lot of responsibility and I was able to manage and be a part of a team. And we did a lot. The story of New York City's recovery from the abysmal 1980s and 1970s where I grew up to the you know the city's glory in the early 2000s is is really quite remarkable and we're going backwards a little bit but even <laughs> even even you know it's hard to undo 20 years of 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 I think better policies on welfare yeah. and schools and economic development so that's how I got into it and that's it is very in my opinion it's very conservative because it was local the, one of the theses of yeah. welfare reform was send the responsibility down mm. and let the states figure it out. Give them a block grant and then have them figure out how to help people get into work. And if they do it well, they can keep the money. And so not every, every decision should be made in Washington. It required a heavy local effort. Mm. A lot of people having human contact with other individuals and helping them get into work. That was, you know, that's not sort of a, a check writing machine from Washington and saved money. It's a huge, the, the, the change in welfare policy concerning cash assistance, that one program still spends in real dollars uh, in, in, you know, at the same amount it spent in 1996. Wow. It's never been adjusted. So it was very conservative. And so when a, when I was after working for Pataki and then Bloomberg and seeing you know, hundreds of thousands of people go off cash welfare and into employment. When uh, that was over, I wanted to write about it and, and try to bring what I'd learned 
to the national discussion, and AEI offered me a position to run the poverty studies program. But it was very clearly to run the poverty studies program right. with conservative values right. and with a conservative experience. It does help that in those discussions about issues concerning low-income Americans, my track record of running entities that provided more aid to more Americans than pretty much anybody else makes it hard for people on the left to come at me and say, mm -hmm. well, you don't really have a heart. You don't really know what you're talking about. You don't really, you've never actually met a low-income American. All that's not true in my case. And so it, 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 it was great. It gave me an opportunity to, to participate. And I continue to participate in that discussion, bringing that experience to bear and what I've learned from scholars and what other states and cities have done and other programs that have not had the success that the cash assistance program had. So that's how it happened. And then what happened was that I uh, was doing that and very happy and got to know the AI community. And, and um, I, I, I wanted to stretch a little. I mean, mm -hmm. if you were in one discipline, you know, you get that this one's fine, but, <laughs> but you can, you can want to say, I'd like to learn about other things. I'd like to force myself to, to worry about foreign and national defense or the economy more generally, or the philosophical underpinnings of our society. And, the opportunity came about to apply for the presidency of AEI and get back into managing, mm -hmm. and they chose me. And so, it you know, I people have in the new world of life, and you'll learn this, Annika. <laughs> you know, you got to be able to take different jobs at different times yeah. in your life, and yeah. and if you're willing to 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 be flexible and to challenge yourself, you can get really um, wonderful experiences. And being the president of AEI during this interesting time yeah, in the yeah. right has been fascinating and a lot of fun but it, it happened because i i care about ideas and i care about my country and i i like aei i think we ideas really matter in the public discussion and i had a track record there and i have managed and so they've selected me you used a very interesting inflection when you said the word interesting <laughs> you sounded a little bit skittish i guess what prompts you to say this is such an interesting time on the right well, because we're divided. Yeah. Um, because the, the 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 it's obvious the the yeah. the, the conservative um, uh, coalition or the conservative consensus is is broken. Yeah. Um, people, I go around the country and and because of what people have seen conservative be in when expressed through the mouth of the former president Donald Trump, then conservative means something to them that isn't what I thought it meant. Yeah. And and so. And yet a lot of people are calling themselves the real conservatives because they, you know, they're um, protectionist, mm -hmm. that they believe in, in retrenching the United States back to its, its, its core country. They are very nationalist and, and um, they don't want to do anything about entitlements. Well, mm -hmm. God, don't can't touch those. We saw that the other day. Somehow or another, the Republicans are, are totally in, mm -hmm. in, in agreement with Democrats that these very large government programs that are spending more than we can afford can't be touched. Well, that's that's a divided conservative movement. And so that's what I mean by interesting. It's, it's um, the great thing about AEI is that we have such wonderful scholars and writers, and there's so many of us that and we don't take yeah. a, we don't take official positions that it's hard to really, you know, everybody admires some part of AI. And so we're not, <laughs> and we don't sign, you know, we don't, you know, we don't take official positions. So we're, we let our scholars call it as they see them. But we have noticed, I noticed that AI scholars are 
disagreeing with other people that call themselves conservatives. And we got to work that out. Yeah. Um, I only last thing I would say is I want to be clear. There are aspects, as I mentioned in the discussion of foreign and defense policy, where the old conservative coalition maybe learned something mm -hmm. from the what's occurred in the last 10 years. Or, uh, uh, we may have learned something about the, the border. We may have learned right. about we may like uh, and support the, the, the glory of hardworking immigrants coming to the United States and, and invigorating our country. All true. But we can't have a broken immigration system right. where illegal immigration, the rule of law matters too. Right. And I think some conservatives in the sort of lost sight of that importance and 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 in their desire for you know free markets, free flow of labor, they weren't mm -hmm. really thinking about what this does to a sense of the rule of law. I think on entitlements, you know, we we may have learned that some hardworking middle class Americans worked all their lives, paid in to Medicare and Social Security, and they expect to get back. Yeah what they paid in. And so we better face up to that. And we better be careful how we talk about that. Fair. And what we try to do, we shouldn't take away from them who've, who have given so much. Um, on the war, I've already mentioned, yeah. you know, we learned a lesson. That there, there are limits to what Americans will tolerate in foreign entanglements. And we need to be conscious of that. Um, so, and then on trade, we've, we've learned that, 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 you know, it's, Free trade is great and is a source of tremendous prosperity to the world and to us. No question about it. But we shouldn't be taken advantage of by China. Mm -hmm. We shouldn't allow this you know, great country to, to abuse the, yeah. the free market system we're trying to create. And they did. And they have. And we have to push back against that. So that kind of debate where, where people of good conscience and people of good sensibility say, hey, wait a minute, some of your some of your principles, some of your priors or some of your principles or some of your rhetoric isn't really addressing the real needs of Americans. That's legitimate. And we've, we have that at AI and we've addressed those issues. But when you go further and you start imposing tariffs on Mexico and Canada, and when you, right. when you right. go, when you start talking about, um, you know, retreating from the world in a way that, or reducing the, the expenditure on, on our national defense, um, and you go, and you also go to, into areas where there's a, a concern that I have about just respecting the freedom of individuals, mm. and freedom of religion, freedom of, of their people to live and order their lives in the way they want. Um, <clears throat> then, then you have to say, wait a minute, that's going too far. And so that's what I, yeah. I don't, I give you a sense of how I see it. No, absolutely. I mean, my feeling, I mean, you've kind of prompted this already is that a lot of people are the reason some of this sort of more big government conservatism, I guess we'll tentatively call it, is so appealing to people is that they feel that conservatives, because they don't put forward these kind of, you know, big central dramatic solutions to issues like poverty, you know, your area of specialty, the, that they don't care about it. Um, so I guess coming, and this is why I'm so interested that you come from that kind of sensibility and that background to doing what you do now what are your thoughts on how conservatives of your persuasion can convince Americans that they do have, you know, kind of good or real solutions from that kind of more freedom oriented, locally oriented perspective? Well, you have to get specific on the various challenges and you have to have a, a program or ideas or solutions. You can't just say laissez-faire, my hands yeah. off, let it happen. Um, you know, in my case, I would extend the lessons of the welfare reform of 1996 to other social benefit programs, public yep. health insurance, food stamp benefits. I think there should be a work expectation in them. 
with people that are being giving a benefit, if they're not working and they're not disabled and they're not senior citizens, we should say to them, how can we get you into work? There's a reciprocal relationship between the giver of aid, in this case, the government, and the individual receiving aid. And they both have to make an effort. And right now in those two very large programs, food stamp benefits and Medicaid, public health insurance, there isn't that. And yeah. so I would extend that. And I talk about that a lot. And I put forth yeah. ideas on that and others have. I don't think the answer is to is to say, oh, I don't want to mess with that. Let's just collapse them into one big cash grant and send it to everybody and let, let them figure it out mm -hmm. themselves. I don't think that's the right answer. Um, and then there are a whole other ways of other issues. I think, you know, we put forth a lot of ideas on ways to bring a little bit of market discipline and 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 market principles to the healthcare delivery system in the United States. We have a lot of positions on housing. We think excessive zoning regulations are preventing the creation of new yeah. housing. Um, we have some, you know, we have views about monetary policy and views about fiscal policy. We have views about how to run our national defense. I think that there are there's a lot of ideas and and there's a, there is a package of ideas and I think a candidate or a person who puts forward a package of ideas will be attractive to Americans. But it's it's not a slogan. Yeah. And it's not I will solve your grievance. It's not you're angry and upset with America and I I see why. Mm -hmm. Um it's, it's specific, it's related, it's and it and it's not necessarily easy. Yeah. It's easy to give an easy answer. It's harder to come up with a sort of platform or a set of policies that can can really address the issues successfully. And I also think there has to be a Humility. One of the things that's really frustrating about politics mm -hmm. in America is that some problems are hard. Yeah. And some issues are very personal and very related to family dynamics or individual communities. And, and you have to be careful saying, I have the answer for everything. Yeah. Some of those answers really come from within and we need to call on them. I mean, I'm, in that respect, I'm very, you know, I identify with some of the rhetoric of Jordan Peterson. Yeah. Who's always saying, take responsibility. Yeah. I don't hear Josh Hawley say, take responsibility. I hear him saying, government's going to take responsibility. We're going to solve your problem. And so that's where I think there's a difference. It gets me concerned. Yeah. I want to change tracks a little bit here. You have started a new department at AEI, Social, Cultural, and Constitutional Studies. And I'm a little bit familiar with it. Huge fan of the people that you've brought on there. Um, but I think the name at the outset, a lot of people might say, what exactly is that? So talk to me about a little bit about the need that you saw and what you've done with that department. Well, so we had an economics department and right. we had a domestic policy department right. and we had a foreign and defense policy department. But as any conservative knows, what happens in human life is more complicated than government policy or economics. There are other issues. There are underlying institutions that... that that form us and that yeah. make, make us a people. Universities, what's going on in universities, what's going on in families, what's going on in, in the law, what's going on in the, in the constitutional discussion. And there was a terrific scholar, young scholar in Washington, Yuval Levin, who yeah. was really outstanding. And, and I was able to recruit him. And this was something that really he wanted to build. And, uh, and it was a center at AI where he recruit scholars who wrote about those I think in some ways more important, more humanistic issues, less focused on government issues. There's a lot of government in what they write about, but it's it's deeper, it seems to me. And um, so that was the goal. And we put this name on it. There was a time when I thought the name was kind of a mouthful and maybe we should come <laughs> up with something else. And I went to Yuval and said, should we change it? And he said, no, I've gotten to like it. So 
if that's what it is. Yeah. Um, people that are smarter than I like to say, you know, these issues are upstream of politics. And, mm. and I always get confused about what's upstream and what's downstream. But, <laughs> but, but that's what they're talking about. Yeah. And so we've recruited uh, Matt Continetti, who's written a great book about the history of the right. We recruited Adam White, who does constitutional law. We re recruited Ben and Jenna Story, who wrote a wonderful book called Why We Are Restless, which is about you know, what is the right kind of liberal education students at these fancy universities should get and are not getting in order for them to understand how they want to live their lives. Um, we, we brought from Princeton Joshua Katz to join that department. We've got Christine Rosen, who writes about the impact of technology on kids and other issues. Um, and, um, and that's what it's about. Um, one thing we haven't done, and it's an interesting issue about whether we should, we haven't really got into this the, the 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 sort of troubling issues concerning gender and sexual politics yeah. and and some people are really into that and want to make it a principal focus of their of their um, scholarship or their writing and others are, are aren't sure and we haven't really found the right scholar to mm -hmm. write or think about those um, Rab Wilcox is kind of in our domestic policy shop and affiliated with our poverty department because he writes about family and marriage and he he writes a little bit about that but. So that was the goal. Um, I don't know that I've really described it as well. You all spoke about, you know, the difference between performative and yeah. and and developing someone internally is really important to it. And we think that, at least, for instance, on college campuses, there's been yeah. an absence of this kind of discussion. Everybody's so careerist. Everybody's so caught up in in unpleasant political divides and identity politics. That's yeah. another thing that we are very uncomfortable with. We celebrate the individual, and we do not ever think that diversity is defined by someone's race or ethnicity or even sex. They're, people are different because they're different right. in their qualities, not in you know, their skin color. And so those are kinds of issues we write about. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that you bring up the college campus issue and the kind of DEI issue because, I mean, well, one, because our department is located on a college campus, so we're really you know, feeling the brunt of this a lot. Uh, but it definitely is, I think, a very important and influential battleground where a lot of these ideas are being fought out. Um, how does AEI kind of think about that? Is, you, know, you guys also produce research, but you're not a university. Are there ways that you're thinking about how to kind of have an impact on college campuses? Oh, absolutely. We, I'm here at Princeton because we have a big involvement with universities, yeah. not just at Princeton, but around the country. We're on 100 campuses with student uh, uh, executive council uh, associations and we our scholars visit universities all the time and colleges. Um, we write about the importance of viewpoint diversity. We write about the importance of civil discourse and yeah. free speech. We write about the importance of courage. I was at a lunch earlier today and I asked the 10 Princeton students, you know, how are things going? They all are very happy. Yeah. And these are conservatives. Uh, they all um, um, love the education they're getting here. And I asked, you know, are you but what's the, are you afraid to speak up in your views? And there were some older students and there were some younger students. The older students were emphatic. Absolutely not. We are, we are saying what we want to believe it is, and, and, mm. and it just takes courage. And, and the freshmen were a little more sort of a little bit uncertain, but, but uh, the person who said it just takes courage was a young woman, sophomore, and she's right. Yeah. You know? And so we want to encourage people to feel comfortable, especially in university, when you're trying out and testing out what you're thinking and you're unsure, uh, the, the openness and willingness to say what you think. And then 
and then engage in the conversation, the dialogue, and you shouldn't be punished for that. You shouldn't yeah. be held back. And so we're very strong on that. We, we do think that there's an imbalance in, in the faculties of major universities in the United States, that there aren't enough conservatives. It happens that at AI, yeah. I, have, I have a faculty in a box. And yeah. University of California, Berkeley, University of Virginia, uh, Georgetown University, University of North Carolina, they've all come to us and said, mm. can you bring more of your scholars here? Because we know there aren't as many conservatives as there should be. We wow. know our students aren't seeing that kind of perspective. And I want to do that. And so, yeah, we take that responsibility very seriously. I do think that the student body has a responsibility here yeah. too. And I think Princeton has seen some very brave students who, yeah, who yeah, have absolutely. been willing to stand up and, uh, and you know, I was an op-ed writer when yeah. I was in college. I was a newspaper editor when I was in high school. I, if people dug out the things I wrote, it would be <laughs> hilarious. But the point is, is that in this careerism and yeah. in this sort of uh, re rejection of politics or debate or, or anger or any kind of tension, a lot of students are retreating and saying, I'm just going to stay out of that world. I'm yeah. just going to keep my head down and stay out of it. And I think that's too bad. And, yeah. and, and I think that, that we want to encourage people to participate in the debate. I, I do, I always am reminded of the famous line about during the Vietnam War protests at the University of Michigan. Uh, you know, during a particularly difficult time, you know, 50 police officers mm. were battling with 100 students mm. at an administration building in the middle of the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. And it was the eyes of the world were upon this awful thing. And meanwhile, 30,000 students were walking by going to class. And the point is, is that we sometimes get wrapped around a very small minority and we forget that the, that the vast majority of people are just want an education and want to learn and are, and, are, and are open to different ideas and haven't become, you know, uh, stereotypes of, of anger and, and bitterness. Yeah. And we need to be talking to those kids and including them and remembering them when we make policy or make pronouncements. I think I had an encounter with a corporate CEO and he told me about in the wake of George Floyd that he did something that because of the loudest voice he thought he had to do concerning, mm. you know, you know, his history or diversity and equity and inclusion. And he satisfied a few people who were yelling at him and his entire company was mad at him because he forsake certain principles mm. concerning merit, concerning, um, you know, respect for our country's history, uh, patriotism. And we got to remember those people that don't always speak up but have deep views and uh, about the, the way their country is being run, their universities being run, or their corporations being run. One of the things that really encourages me about your answer is that you, you're saying that universities and corporations are coming to you, asking you to bring intellectual diversity or yeah. you know, introduce new viewpoints. Uh, talk to me a little bit about that, because it's encouraging me to hear that there's still demand for this stuff, as crazy as campuses are. Well, the best example is in Georgetown. Georgetown University is a you know, Catholic university, but very yeah. liberal. Um, and uh, the dean of the McCourt School of, of, of Public Policy is an old friend of mine, also a progressive, without question. She works in the public policy area that I work, but we're friends. And she decided that when she became dean that she wanted um, that university to be diverse, and, but she viewed diverse as including mm. uh, ideological diversity. Mm. And public schools and public policy can tilt way left. Yeah. You, you can go through, I had a friend who went to the Kennedy School and said they were the one conservative 
in 120 students. Wow. And um, the dean at McCord Schools didn't doesn't like that. Mm. And she said, "But I can't do it on my own. I'm I'm not. I don't I don't know conservatives. I'm yeah. not. I don't know how to network or bring people. And so we formed a joint effort where students will come to McCord and affiliate with AEI, and they will see that 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 there's a there's an openness and a and a welcoming nature toward people who see the world different than the progressive yeah. left." at McCord School. So that's an example. Berkeley has had us out. We've done things with them. <laughs> Howard University. Wow, us, really? Us so that's amazing. It happens. Well, you know, I'm on the, I was on the phone with the people at the University of Florida. Ben Sass is going there. That's yeah, clearly huge. what University of North Carolina is talking about doing. There's definitely a, and it's a huge opportunity, by the way, totally. for these universities to see these, um, these, intolerant enclaves of progressive political correctness and say, well, they can do that and I can do the other thing and I'll bet you I'll get more students and greater donor support and I'll build a nicer university because what I'm doing is closer to what universities should be and what people want. And so it's, it's, uh, it makes sense. I mean, it it makes sense to me. I I mean, I, uh, I'm a parent of four children. I, they've all went through the college situation. I know the attitude of people that are in the market for education and they don't want uh, political correctness. They don't want intolerance. They don't want a squelching of free speech. They want a university that, that embodies the values of a liberal education. And uh, if you do that, your people are going to come to you and schools that don't do that are going to lose students and lose donor support. And they should. Yeah, I'm cackling thinking about the demographics that's going to hit and who's going to win and who's going to lose. Yeah. <laughs> well, there is going to be a shakeout in higher education, yeah, yeah, and yeah. and and one of the you know that's a whole nother issue with regard to the way the, the student loan debt interacts with the, right, with the market. Right. But the fact is, is that is that is that parents and kids and students are going to make um, decisions about what's in their best interest, and they're going to be informed by issues like these that lead them to pick a university that is yeah. more open. I also think universities, um, you know, I came to the Princeton campus last June for uh, the um, commencement exercise. My son graduated and um, uh, President Icegrouper spoke about how the percentage of kids in the United States going to college and the number of kids going to college was dropping. And he indicated that there were causes of this. But I think if you look at the speech, he never said one of the causes might be that universities and colleges aren't offering a yeah. good enough product. Yeah. yeah. And that is something that, that we ought to, that's a market 100%. test. And that is a, you got to recognize, you got to give something that has value, that's, that's fairly priced, and then will lead to the outcome that gives a opp- person an opportunity to advance in society. And I think there's some aspects of higher education in the United States that hasn't done that. And that's why some kids are saddled with debt they can't pay off. Yeah. That's why some kids drop out before they finish their degree. And um, and we ought to face up to that and make adjustments within the higher education community to offer a better product at a fairer price. And that it that, that meets kids, you know, again, not everybody has to go to a four-year college. Some kids might benefit from, you know, a vocational education or some education related to a trade. I think we need to be better at that in the United States. So my point is, is that a little bit of introspection yeah. among people who run universities, what can we do better or differently um, would be helpful. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and sort of on a related note, as we sort of start to wrap up here, um, you are in fact a graduate of this very university, class of 1983, if I'm correct. That's correct. Um, what, during your time here, would you say is either your favorite memory or your most important lesson learned from your own college experience at, at Princeton? Well, I had a, I was a history major and I loved the history department and I, I loved my experience in that department, but I had a, a great affection for both American studies and the English department. Mm. And my most fond memory is of David Van Leer, who was my sophomore American literature professor, and uh, Valerie Smith, who went on to be a dean at Princeton, was also in, in that English program, and Professor Howarth. And mm. they taught me um, or I learned from them and from my classmates and from my reading, really the great writers of American literature from about 1800 until 1950. And I really love that. I think yeah. literature and the study of English is a great way to understand your society and your, your country and your people and who you are as a person. And those seminars, those precepts, uh, both lectures and precepts were really wonderful. So I have a great memory of those. And then I was a JV basketball player, so I was ah. around Coach Grill. And Pete Grill is a, is a, someone I think about every day. Um, mm. He believed in work. He believed in merit. There's no, there's no, you know, there's no affirmative action on picking the starting five. Yeah. And um, and he demanded a lot, and, and he cared a lot, and he also believed in integrity and in and honesty in your the way in which you went about your life and. Um, he was a, a, a great coach. He was difficult and yeah. certainly not difficult on me because I wasn't very good. So he didn't have to, <laughs> he didn't have to worry about me. And, he, and so he didn't pay any attention to me. But, but he challenged the really great players to be really even greater. And they were some wonderful athletes. And they, I think, um, this, you know, in every four-year class, there were some athletes that really blossomed into people that performed great you know, with great grace under pressure in the in the big game against Penn, which to me is an important thing. I do, I do, I have picked up among my as I hang around with all of you intellectuals and and academics um, that there's a um, there's a little bit of insufficient respect for the achievement that comes with athletic. Yeah, and yeah. I wish there was more of that because if you're a really great soccer player or basketball player or whatever. You've applied yourself to a hard thing yeah. and you've worked really hard and there's a discipline and character that's needed for that. And I think all of us should respect that. And I, I was a part of the Princeton experience that I like my getting to know the, the great athletes in my class and, and the classes around me. So those are some things I, I, I should have worked harder. <laughs> I wish I would work a I think everyone harder. feels that way about college. Well, I don't think it's just you. <laughs> maybe that's true. But, 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 but I didn't, I really didn't work hard. Enough. I should have applied myself more. But I, but I, I did like Princeton and, and I was very fortunate to be able to go here. And, um, and I, um, you know, I, I think of, of the university experience properly lived and properly offered is one of the crowning mm -hmm. jewels of the United States. We yeah. have the greatest universities in the world. Yeah. And we need to keep them that way or get them back in that direction because we, we, um, we've lost something. Yeah, 100%. And I'm so happy to hear you talk about the athletic element as well. I was also a college athlete. I was a walk-on. Um, and it was just... I, I was a walk-on Yeah, too. I couldn't agree <laughs> yeah, with you more. Yeah, it's yeah. just such an important, like, teaches you so much discipline. And yeah. it's really tough and important thing to undertake. 
Um, one last question. I know I promised that the last one was the yeah, last that's question, okay. but I can't resist. You are also it was sort of multi-generational Princeton family. Mm -hmm. You also had a son who recently graduated from here. I guess, yeah, picky promise, last question. But um, what are your thoughts on, you know, how the university has changed from your generation to his generation in a good way or a bad way? Well, Bobby um, is my youngest, and he was ROTC at Princeton, yeah. and he loved ROTC, and he's now a second lieutenant in the United States Army. Mm -hmm. And um, he was here during COVID, and uh, that was hard. Yeah. Um, but he developed a network of friends yeah. that was a really interesting group of, of young people, and they lived off campus during COVID, and there were nine of them, and there were three young women and, and six young men. And they just had a little gathering uh, in Nashville where they all came from mm -hmm. their separate parts of the country. And one of them actually works at AEI, it's an RA at AEI. And so uh, I went out to Stanford to visit some people out there as part of my job. And I looked up one of the other ones who's in the uh, graduate program in civil and environmental engineering, mm -hmm. getting her PhD. Um, so uh, the exposure to these really bright kids yeah. um, and their intellectual curiosity and their depth um, was very good for him, but the but the interruption of his of his coursework made it less less fun. And I think the university, like a lot of America, got a little um, overboard on yeah. the nanny state stuff and yeah. and the sort of policing behavior in an unpleasant way. And that was unpleasant for him. And then he did say that he felt that there was a a um, a a a political correctness and a, and a lack of welcome to people who have a more conservative viewpoint. And, and I, I did tell him, I said, Bobby, you just have to have the courage to speak up. You can't give yeah. into that. And um, so I, I think, you know, it was a great university when I went there and the great university when Bobby was there, we've been very lucky to have this exposure, but going to school during the, when right in the middle, yeah. we had this interruption because of COVID, there's going to be some history written about, what that yeah. did to us. And now I will say, um, you know, at graduation, I wasn't all that sympathetic to, you know, look at us. We've, you know, we've been <laughs> through hell and yeah, we're still yeah, yeah. standing. I mean, I, you know, you want to go to hell, go to Ukraine. Right. No, I mean, 100%. you know, or, or, or live in China under, you know, a, a dictatorship. Uh, so, we are challenged in America with various challenges, but we can't get down. We got to keep moving forward and we can't, we can't nurture our grievances. Yeah. We can't obsess over, you know, our challenges. Our challenges are, are there for us to overcome, not to, not to wail about and get, you know, big government to solve. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. What a fantastic note to end on. Really appreciate you taking the time, Robert. Thank you very much. Well, there you have it, Madisonians, AEI's Robert Doerr, discussing the state of conservatism in the country broadly and on college campuses, including at our very own Princeton. If you enjoyed this discussion, we would really appreciate any and all five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, whatever it is you use. It really does make a really big difference to us. And to find out more about the Madison program, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, or our website, jmp.princeton.edu. There's tons of great opportunities to either come learn with us over the summer there or see some of the lectures that we host on Princeton's campus. So please do go ahead and check it out. Thanks so much for tuning in, and we'll catch you next time here on Madison's Notes.